hairs on my body started standing on end. Silent. Nothing there. I fought to get back into my body. You are going to be a vital importance of helping us convince the masses. Type 471. Type 471. Bridge to the other world. Bridge to the other world. Welcome to Type 471. I'm Sam Kitchen. My guest today is the famous John Urban. Now, John is a, he's an artist. He's made coloring books, and his latest coloring book is Famous Bigfoot and Yeti Encounters Coloring Book. John's a colorful and interesting guy. I don't know him all that well, but I, I get a lot of very interesting impressions about him. We're gonna, we're gonna get to all that during this episode. So John Urban, the famous John <laughs> Urban. Welcome to Type 471. How you doing today? I'm doing really well. Good, good. I'm glad to hear that. Before we get into any of our business, John, I feel the need to acknowledge a breaking story that I became aware of mere moments ago by looking at your Facebook page. Okay. It appears that author Anne Rice has passed away. Were you a... Oh, man. Yeah, I was a huge fan of hers. I read pretty much most of her vampire, you know, the... The Vampire uh, Chronicles. The Vampire Vampire Chronicles and some of our other books. So yeah, I was, I was very sad to hear that. Yeah, me too. I actually, I was devastated. Uh, I actually was a few minutes late for you, John, just because I was absorbing this news about Anne Rice. She was a, she was a very important early influence for me. She gave us, like John mentioned, she wrote Interview with the Vampire. She gave us the tormented and immortal characters of Lestat de Leoncourt and Louis de Pondulac. And uh, she wrote a lot of stuff outside of the Vampire Chronicles. She wrote about mummies. In her latest years, she returned to her Catholic roots, and she wrote a novel about Christ in his earliest years in Egypt. So Anne Rice was quite a complex and wonderful author, and she will be missed. So thank you, John, for allowing me a moment to acknowledge the passing of Anne Rice at the top of the show. Definitely. Yeah. So, um, I, I really want to hear a lot about you. You mentioned to me, you mentioned to me some early, uh, experiences as a musician. I just want to flesh you out a bit, a little bit, the famous John Urban. Who are you? What, what are those early experiences as a musician all about? Basically, I was always raised to be a creative person by my mom. My two oldest brothers didn't really have much talent. My mother, she was a musician. She played trumpet and piano. She acted in plays. She was a cheerleader. So she did all these things. And then at an early age, my mom saw that I had some talent. So she was encouraged me. I mean, I started out playing trumpet like she did. And after I saw Kiss, Gene Simmons was my hero and I had to switch to bass. And, but, um, but I, you know, basically as far as both writing and art and music, I kind of tried to do all of them. And, uh, so I kind of, I started off with the music. I mean, in high school, I was writing for the newspapers and drawing cartoons and things, but I kind of pursued the music thing first. And I graduated in 1981, right when the hair band metal was big. So I, my family moved to Florida from Cleveland, Ohio, where I was raised. And I joined a, a promising band. The band was called Brat, like a little kid, B-R-A-T. But we actually ended up being more of a heavy metal band. And we had some major record labels interested in us. just certain personnel in the band kind of sabotaged that but we did put out a record that was out on some small independent labels 
So I did the heavy metal thing. And I also, I played bass by a lot of the lyrics as well. But um, I was always kind of torn between <clears throat> music and writing and artwork. Um, so basically, uh, I went to, I got a degree in art, but then I, just because of my music and my local connections, I started writing for various local publications, a music journalist. I wrote for a national magazine called Art Shock America. Um, I wrote for, did record reviews and interviews for the Tampa Tribune newspaper. I got to interview a lot of big people like my hero, Gene Simmons, or Ronnie James Dio and Joey Ramones. I met a lot of famous people on the writing end of it. But then also as an artist, after I, I was actually a character artist for a lot of local places like Bush Gardens Theme Park and the Tampa Zoo and the Tampa Aquarium. So I was doing character art since around 1999. So basically, about seven, eight years ago, I came up with the idea of writing a children's book about werewolves called Ward the Wolf Boy Night Terrors. And I illustrated every chapter had a full page illustration of the characters in it. So that was my first book. And that was not hugely successful, to be honest with you. <laughs> well, but I was. It, 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 it's an interesting book. I've I've looked at the pictures. I I mean, you know, I mean, if it wasn't enorm enormously successful, I mean, maybe it's just because it wasn't exposed enough. I mean, what do you think? Uh, definitely. Yeah, I didn't really. I mean, I don't want to get too sad about it, but it's just bad timing. I was a caregiver for my handicapped mother, and right when the book came out, she had a major stroke, and for about four years, I was visiting in the rest home for like three or four times a week and everything, and I just didn't really promote it like I should. I'm kind of hit on the background. I actually wrote a sequel to it, you know, the rough draft of it anyway. So one of these days I might reemerge that. But basically what happened is I've always been interested in Bigfoot. And it's kind of funny. Um, it didn't occur to me until recently that what really got me started in Bigfoot is Bumble from the, the Bonneville Snowman from Rudolph Red-Nosed Reindeer. And a lot of people probably don't think of it, but I think most people are introduced to Bigfoot by that cartoon because they see it with the little kids. And that new, that t animated TV show, or Christmas special, I should say, came out a year after I was born. I was born in 1963, and it came out the next year. So every year I, I'd see this thing, and I got fascinated by it. But basically, after the Patterson-Kimlin film, or Gimlin film, came out a few years later, they made a documentary that actually came, was at movie theaters. My, for whatever reason, my parents took me to that when I was about four or five. And I saw, you know, Patty, you know, they, what they affectionately call her. I saw her on the big screen and I was like, oh my gosh, these eggs are real. And then a few years later, The Legend of Bobby Creek came out and I went and saw that. So I, from an early age, I was fascinated with Bigfoot. So that's kind of what led me to this current book. Excellent. It sounds like in a very general sense, you and I have a, a lot of things in common, John, like, uh, you know, early creative endeavors that branch out in many different directions. Um, you know, I, I can see the creative seed in you. And uh, I, uh, that, that early interest in Bigfoot, I find that very interesting. Now, tell me, John, uh, in, in, at any point in your life, have you ever experienced anything that you would consider like a paranormal type event? nothing drastic um i mean i i mean even to this day i i i was both my parents died and i live in their house still i kind of inherited it and it's an old house and it lives in a retirement community it's like a 50 year old house that people previously might have died in. i don't know but both my parents are gone i'm just lived by myself with this little miniature yorkie and he barks at things sometimes that aren't there and there's a certain room my dad's old bedroom that i use kind of as my man cave and office and 
My dog follows me around everywhere around the house, but he will not come into this room. It's really strange. Um, so I don't know. Uh, but the weird thing is when my mother had uh, her stroke, it affected her mind. She had a lot of delusions and stuff like that, but she would see my dead father all the time. She'd wake up and he'd be standing over her bed and she'd reach out to him and her, he would disappear. So, you know, I once said, oh, yeah, that she has delusions and everything. She didn't have Alzheimer's or anything, but yeah, you know, I'm like, I don't know, you know, and, but the weird thing that freaked me out is that we, she was so bad. They need a hoary lift, get her in out of bed. We needed, to, so we couldn't drive her home. We actually, for holidays, we actually had to rent like a, a van, just wheel the wheelchair in and stuff. And, and it was expensive. So when they did it on holidays, and the last time she died in February, a few days, you know, before my birthday. And, um, we brought her home the last time for Christmas and this at night and it was just me and my brother and my mom. And all of a sudden, my mom just nonchalantly said, hey, who's that woman in the kitchen? There was no woman in the kitchen. So she saw dead people. It might have been in her mind. I don't know. But um, I kind of wonder sometimes. Well, in a, in a very general sense, those things that can derange the mind can allow for mystical perception. And Joseph Campbell talked about this when he said the schizophrenic drowns in the same waters in which the mystic swims with delight. Now, he was talking about schizophrenia, but uh, but this schizophrenia was meant to represent various derangements of the mind in general. So at times in certain individuals, uh, an event that deranges the mind or the senses can allow for mystical perception, it seems. Well, what I always thought about that is that a lot of small children see ghosts or spirits or whatever. Then some people that are older that have had strokes or Alzheimer's things see it. And we, I think it's kind of connected because I think little children see ghosts because they don't know they're not supposed to. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like the same way with people have strokes. It's just like, cause everyone thinks, oh, there's no such thing as ghosts and everything. And then after a period, when kids get older, their parents tell them, okay, there's no Santa Claus. There's no tooth fairy. There's no Easter bunny. Everything's fake. And so all of a sudden you, you start thinking all these wonderful things we grew up with are all fake. So it kind of includes ghosts and spirits and things like that. So, you know, if you're kind of taught and trained and conditioned and programmed not to believe in the supernatural. You have touched upon something that is very important to me, John, something that has been a very prominent thought in my mind for years now. I have wanted to make a documentary, and I still plan to make a documentary, about children or exploring the, the, my theory that all children have mystical perception and that they have spiritual experiences in their early life, that it is a natural state of humanity to have these experiences, and that they are trained later in life, conditioned culturally, conditioned by society, to believe that these experiences are invalid. And, uh, but it is my very firm belief or suspicion at the very least is a very strong suspicion of mine that all people enter into this world having spiritual experiences as children well let me tell you one quick story that um all my, all my parents oh, i'm sorry all my grandparents died before i can remember them and my mother my, my family is a very religious family and my mother's my mother's father was a minister and but she's always talked about how wonderful her mother her mother which is my grandmother was but I don't remember them at all. But they, there's this one picture I still have hanging in my house my, of my grandparents. And my mom had a very small picture. She laminated into a keychain. And I like looking at it, you know, so she let me have it. So I had this image of my grandparents programmed in my mind. And when I was very small, it was before kindergarten. I can't remember how old I was, but it was very small. One of my earliest memories was I had to have my tonsils taken out. 
And because back in the 60s, if you cough, they would go, okay, let's take your tonsils out. They, you know, they did everybody. But anyway, they were going to have my tonsils taken out. And they took me to the hospital uh, Easter weekend. And I was going to spend the night. And they're going to operate in the morning. And they put me in this huge children's wing. And they had, I was the only kid there. And because it was Easter. And, and they probably had limited nurses because there was a holiday and stuff. And then the hallway, they had a thing is, you know, like when you see those hotels, the cheap hotels that got the glass, everything. Um, all, all, there's all these glasses that were from people in the hallway could look into the children's ward. So it was very late. I don't know how late it was because I was a kid. It could have been 8 o'clock, could have been midnight. But the nurses weren't checking on me. It was dark. And I, I could see the illumination of the lights in the hallway. And I was very scared. And all of a sudden, an elderly couple came up that looked just like the picture on the keychain. And they looked at me, and my fear was gone. And they smiled, and they walked away. Now, it could have just been coincidental. Some nice elderly couple came in and smiled at me. Or it could have been maybe angels appearing in a form that would make me comfortable. Or it could have been my grandparents' spirits. I don't know. But that's the only thing that kind of, years later, that vividly came back to me. It was just kind of like, I don't know what it was, but whatever it is, I was, I was very scared. I was all alone. All of a sudden. I was very calm, peaceful, and went to sleep. So that's the only thing I had that could have been maybe a paranormal. I'm really glad you shared that with me, John. That uh, that resonates with childhood memories of my own. I mean, I, I, I of course, didn't have the same spe- experience you did, but I remember things like that happening in my childhood. It, 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 it meets a certain, uh, it has a certain quality that I have come to recognize as authentic, your experience. So, yes, I... I I, I see what you're talking about. I see that kind of experience that you're talking about. Yes. Well, it's just the whole thing about it is that you see that a lot of movies that all the, all the kids have the, the uh, what you call the invisible friend, you know, and a lot of times in movies, it's something else. And that's what kind of makes you wonder. All these kids talk to these things that aren't there. Then after a while, they grow out of it. And it's just after a while, they grow old enough that they start losing their belief. And, uh, and you know, who knows? It could have just been something made up, but. Usually it's very specific. They have names or, you know, so you never know. Oh, yes. Yeah. My, my youngest sister had a whole family of friends. <laughs> yeah. Just that she had this whole societal structure. And, uh, to this day, I've always wondered exactly who she was interacting with. And she, she, I, I don't know. She's, she talks about it. And I, based on what I've spoken with her about it as an adult, I, it seems to me that she was actually interacting with somebody at that time. So, I mean, just based on her own recollections of it. So, John, um, it, I get the impression that your Bigfoot journey toward this coloring book has led you through a lot of research. I get, I get the impression you've, you've done a lot of digging and a lot of investigating and a lot of learning. What, where did you pick up that thread and where did that thread take you? Okay. Well, uh, basically, I've been interested in Bigfoot all these years. I've read a lot of books, seen a lot of TV shows and movies and things. But kind of what's interesting about it is I, you know, I wasn't voted most likely to write a Bigfoot coloring book when I was in high school or anything like that. I never considered doing a coloring book. But um, I, uh, I work at call centers for a living. And a couple years ago, I worked for a moving company. And I live down here in Tampa, Florida. But it, it, this moving company is a national company. And so a lot of people up north don't move when it's cold and freezing out. They just don't like to do it. So the winter is our slow season. And uh, so we had a lot of dead time between calls. We were just sitting there, and we couldn't use our cell phones or anything. But they would let us write and draw and stuff. So around Christmas time, a couple years ago, among other things, my brother got me one of those hardback books with the blank pages you can draw in. 
And so I took it to work. And for some reason, it just occurred to me, I'm just going to draw nothing but pictures of Bigfoot, you know, in between calls. And I'm just, you know, with a pencil, just scribbling down these five, 10 minute drawings. And before you knew it, I had a hundred pages of Bigfoot and they're all different. So I belong to several Bigfoot Facebook pages and I started posting these random pictures. Now, these are not works of art. These are things I just scribbled in in five or 10 minutes. And all these people, not to brag or anything, but I'm getting like a hundred likes. Everyone's saying, this is incredible. And they're, and some people started saying, you should make a Bigfoot coloring book. And the thing is, is like I said, I, I, I'm a professional character artist. And so I'm good at line work. And a lot of my artwork style, people compared to like tattoo art. And I don't think I'm the best artist in the world, but I have a certain style that's, I think, recognizable. And so I thought, well, coloring book, okay, that that's kind of up my alley. I can do that because I like drawing whimsical things. So I had the idea to do it, you know, just because these people were recommending it. And, but the thing is, I thought, okay, I'll probably be the first person in the world ever to do Bigfoot coloring book. And I go online, and there are a bunch of Bigfoot coloring books. So what happened was I looked at these artwork, and a lot of the Bigfoot coloring books are these happy, frumpy Bigfoot, you know, frolic in the woods with the woodland creatures and stuff. And I'm like, okay, I'm not going to do that. So I went the other extreme. So my illustrations are a little bit more realistic. The Bigfoot are very muscular, and they're kind of aggressive for the most part. I have a few kind of whimsical things in there. But I'm really making it more for adults. As a matter of fact, I purposely put a picture of two aggressive Bigfoot fighting on a cover just so parents would know, hey, this isn't a Barney book, you know. I even put, if you look on the cover, it's kind of small. But on the bottom, under my name, it says rated 8 to 80, maybe too scary for small children. So it's kind of really more for Bigfoot enthusiasts. I mean, there's nothing wrong for little kids. I mean, little kids probably, you know, they grew up watching cable. They've seen everything. It's really their mothers or overprotective parents that might get offended by it. But it's a little scarier. But the other thing I did was my Bigfoots don't look the same. But one of the things I think is most fascinating about Bigfoot is that they don't look the same. I mean, you got the ones like the Patterson film that look more ape-like. Then there's some that look more human-like. I mean, I've even heard some people say that some Bigfoot are actually attractive. And then you got the, the ones in the middle, the, the hybrids that look like cavemen, like Neanderthals. So that's what I did. I, I'm, I, all, I tried to draw all these different types of Bigfoots. And I took all the, like, more known one. You know, of course, I got the Patterson in there. I got Legend of Boggy Creek. But I, I took all of these old stories. And so I, I have a two-page glossary that tells what all the different ones are with a brief description. So it's kind of like a history book or like a who's who of Bigfoot. It's kind of like walking through a Bigfoot museum reading my book because they're all different. And most of them are actually reported creatures like Momo, the Missouri monster. I got the, uh, the Minnesota Iceman in there. I, I just have all these different things. And, and the whole thing, one thing I, I like about it is that, like, if you look, I, I don't have a lot of words because it's, it's a coloring book. It's mostly illustrations. But in the glossary, I do have the dates that just show how far back, how far back these sightings go. Because when people say, oh, there's no such thing as Bigfoot, I say, well, Bigfoot reports have come. They pretty much date from man, when man first recorded time or recorded history. And from every con- a continent in the world except for Antarctica. And like some of these date back the 1800s, you know, it's like there's a wild man from Tennessee from the 1800s. There's like the blue man of the Appalachians there from 1860. Um, there's all, they date back really far. And so it's just to me, for every, sure, there's going to be hoaxes. There are going to be people that see deers or bears or stumps or whatever, you know, that's, that's going to happen. But to say that every person that saves they saw Bigfoot since the world first began is all fake. 
I find that harder to believe than the concept of Bigfoot, personally. I don't know. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You're absolutely right. You know, it's one of those things where we're kind of both exploring the inside and the outside at the same time when we're inquiring into Bigfoot. And what do I mean by that? Well, this is what I mean, John. I mean, we're, we're, we're exploring something that people see uh, that actually happens, that people experience. I've had my own very close Bigfoot encounter, so I know that they are physical beings in this world. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we're, we're exploring a very literal thing when we see a hairy hominin out in the woods. We're exploring a physical thing, but we're also exploring a, 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 an internal phenomenon. We're exploring something when we're, when we're trying to connect with the other half of ourselves. We're exploring two things at the same time. We're exploring the inside and the outside of humanity when we are looking for Bigfoot. Yeah, I mean, that's... Well, the whole thing about it is that the weird thing about Bigfoot sightings is that I know people, I mean, I belong to a, a big research group called the Mid-Florida Bigfoot Research Group, but I don't really go out that much because honestly, in Florida, it's dangerous. You got alligators, you got venomous snakes, you got all these things. Oh, and yeah. uh, so, I mean, I, I don't go out there with them as much. Um, but the whole thing is, well, first off, whatever these creatures are, because I'm one of these people, I don't think it's just a dumb ape. I think um, it. Because basically, I think if you took 20 gorillas and threw them in, in a local park, state park, sooner or later, people would see them. I, I mean, these, I think they have advanced hearing. I think they have advanced senses of smell and sight that they are aware of you lo far longer than you're aware of them. And most people are just kind of clum clum clumsy, walk around the woods and stuff. So most people that go out to see them is kind of rare because most people actually see them are by mistake. It's mostly by like people driving late at night and seeing across the road or or just kind of stumble them because every now and then these things will just drop their guard. They might be like hunting something or whatever, and you see them, and it's just over in a few seconds. But it's usually the people, a lot of people that see them don't want to see them. A lot of people are traumatized. They're afraid that they don't talk about it because they think people are going to make fun of them. Uh, I figure probably a huge amount of the sightings just no one ever talks about. They've probably seen much more than we realize. Oh, yeah, by far. So that's just a lot to it. And, and one of the things I like to talk about is. I, you know, because I've been doing this for so long, it's just, I hate when people come up with a really predictable, cliche things. Well, there's, if there's a Bigfoot, how come you haven't caught one? And how come all the pictures are blurry? And how come you don't find the bodies? And they act like they just came up with themselves. And I'm like, okay, same old story. One time, one thing I tell people about the blurry photos, for example, is that why that happens. Now, first off, you know, from the reports I hear that despite of their body mass and their size, they're supposed to be very graceful and very fast. So most of the sightings you see is just for a glimpse, you know. But as far as when the people are actually able to take a photograph of them, they talk about them being blurry. I always talk about, well, let's let's say you're in the woods and you're by yourself or just one or two people in the middle of the woods, nobody's around, and all of a sudden you see a full-grown silverback gorilla come up to you. You'd be freaking out, right? You don't know what it's going to do. It's this powerful thing. And, but the thing is, is that a lot of people think gorillas are so big, but as far as height wise, they're usually only barely over five feet tall. So, but these gorillas are still about at least six times stronger than a person, like six to nine times stronger than a person. So you'd be, you know, if you saw a gorilla like 30, 40 feet away, you'd, you'd be nervous taking a picture because you don't know if it's going to attack you or not. But let's say you go back to the woods the following week and you see a Bigfoot. And alpha males sometimes are anywhere from 8 to 10 feet tall. I've heard people say they're 12 feet tall. And so basically, 
all of a sudden you're out in the woods to see something twice as big and twice as strong as a gorilla that can outrun you. And you don't, they're unpredictable. You don't know. I mean, usually people say they're gentle, but they might be territorial or, you know, they could rip your arms off. So if you see this creature with four foot shoulders, that's eight to 10 feet tall, would you be over there taking calmly taking pictures, you know, and everything? I, I, don't, I don't, I wouldn't, I mean, I don't know. And there are a number of factors to explore there. There's that. I mean, there is the overwhelming physical presence of a Sasquatch that is absolutely traumatizing and terrifying in many circumstances. But there are also a number of other factors in addition to that one very prominent factor. There's the factor that uh, most people who are attempting to take pictures are doing so with their phones. And phones use automatic settings and and when people are taking pictures of sasquatch why this is outside in nature where 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 light is not a predictable thing where where light is doing all sorts of things it's playing off of leaves and leaves are moving and light is just doing all kinds of stuff out in the woods so when you're trying to take a picture and your phone is on these automatic settings then your phone is just following the light and it's not following the sasquatch your phone is just doing what a phone does and 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 it all it doesn't always take the exact exactly right kind of picture a phone with automatic settings is not an ideal instrument with which to try to take a fleeting image of a being who is escaping through the woods well i just know how many times sometimes i'd want to take a picture and go first off now somebody is going out there you know squatching or whatever you want to call it hunting bigfoot you know, they probably have their cameras on, they're ready, ready to go. But, you know, the phones, what's frustrating me with the phone is if I'm in a hurry, you got to turn the phone on, they're going to hit this button, that button, and hit the button, turn on the camera, and, and half the time it's set on selfie, staring at you, you got to change that. And, I mean, it's just hard. You know, basically, these creatures aren't going to stand around. I mean, you know, they're, they're going to try to get away from you as soon as possible. And so, you know, you, you'd be lucky just to get a glimpse of, you know, the back of them behind a bunch of trees if you're, you know, can do that. Exactly. Think about the amount of time it takes to activate the camera function on your phone, to take it out of your pocket and then activate the, the camera. What, what, what do you think? Four to six seconds, maybe, to, to, to complete the whole process? In that time, a Sasquatch is usually gone. Yeah, and plus, and plus uh, that's normally. Can you imagine if you see some huge creature, either you're going to be terrified or fascinated or just in awe, whatever the case may be. So that's going to make your hands, you know, blah, you know. Absolutely. Now, I, I, I know you've done just all kinds of research, and, and you, John, you're, you're on exactly the opposite side of the United States from me. I'm in the Pacific Northwest, and you are in Florida. And uh, we know from our research that there are variations of Sasquatches throughout the country. So what do you know about the differences between the Sasquatches in my neck of the woods and yours? See, I've never been down to Florida, and I, I would really love to be able to study the differences. So what do you know? I want to I know. I want to glean what I can from your knowledge. Well, as far as, you know, they call it the Florida Skunk Ape down here. And they, from what I understand, I mean, you know, I've had some people that just kind of mock Bigfoot being more than nine feet tall. I mean, I hear sometimes 10 or 12 feet tall up in Alaska or they're crazy big. But, um, but uh, you know, in your neck of the woods, I imagine they're probably around the nine foot range or so. Um, I think down here in Florida, they're a little bit shorter, somewhere um, between six to eight, eight feet, maybe seven, eight foot. So they're still probably bigger than a person, but they're not quite as big as the, as the Bigfoot on your end of the country. And they tend to be more aquatic. And now, also, I've heard they tend to look more ape-like, kind of more like orangutans or whatever. They, they're more aquatic. A lot of times people see them wading, like waist-deep in water, actually submerging, going underwater. But the, the, the thing about Florida is that Florida is, actually, a lot of people don't think about it, but Florida is a real hot spot. I, I've heard that they're 
Florida's like maybe like the fourth biggest uh, state of seeing sightings. But the whole thing is that there's so much, um, so much water down here. Because the main thing that Bigfoot needs, well, they need enough woods that they can hide. They need water sources. They need food sources. And down here, and of course, we have deer. We have some bear and panther. But we have like the feral hogs. And, uh, and of course, alligators. I mean, they might eat alligators for all we know. I don't know. And so there's a lot. And the other thing about it is that where I, I live in a suburb of Tampa, Florida. Now, there is a park in Tampa, a large park called Lettuce Lake, where there have been some sightings of Bigfoot. Um, but also, I don't know if you ever heard of Mayaka State Park. I have. Yeah, because back in 2000, there's one picture that some elderly woman, there's this, somebody was stealing uh, fruit out of her back porch. And she went out and took a picture of this creature, and she anonymously sent it to the police department because she thought it was an orangutan. And her her grandkids would come by on the weekend and play in the yard, and so she was wanting them to go get this orangutan they thought escaped from a roadside attraction or zoo or whatever. But the problem is that she thought, she said this orangutan was seven feet tall. And again, orangutan are even short and gorillas. They're like a little over four feet tall. And then the picture, I mean, to me, I, I, I mean, it, had, it didn't have red hair like an orangutan, but it had long hair like an orangutan. It had dark hair like a chimp, but chimps don't have that much long hair. It, to me, it looked like a separate creature. But basically, uh, getting back, but this was taken by Mayaka Park. Now, that place, I've been there several times. It's about 20, 30 minutes from my house. And it's a huge park, but they have tons of big alligators. They have like 200 alligators out there. And they even have like a cruise, I'm not a cruise, a little alligator tour in an airboat a boat. And I went out there and I saw all these nine, 10 foot alligators. So my point is a place like that, there's going to be areas that's so dense. They have alligators, they have poisonous snakes, they got, you know, feral hogs, they got all these creatures that a lot of people are going to be afraid to go. So it's a safe haven for creatures like Bigfoot. Because I know Ocala Park, that one also has supposedly a lot of Bigfoot. And then you go into the Everglades, which is like a jungle. They got pythons out there. So there's a lot of like tropical type environments with a huge water source, huge food source that these creatures could live at. But to answer your question, I think they're a little bit smaller. They tend to be more aquatic and a little bit more ape-like. Yeah. And I have been familiar with those Mayaka skunk ape pictures since just about the moment they appeared on the internet 20 years ago. And when I first saw them, and ever since, they have looked for all the world to me very much like an orangutan. Now, that's not saying that I think it is an orangutan. It just means that that orangutan impression is very, very strong and prominent. And uh, this orangutan connection, this, this orangutan parallel that always or so very often comes up with Sasquatch reports and Yowie reports in, in Australia, they're always talking about the Yowie as being similar to the orangutan. I, it's just, it's very interesting to me, uh, this, this orangutan similarity. Are you, are you at all familiar with Pearl Prehoda, John? No, I'm not. Okay. Well, she, she wrote a book called Manotang, in which she explores this, this orangutan connection. It's, it's a very interesting one. That's not to say that, you know, I, I, I am certain of any one idea or another. It's just there is, there is this parallel that we need to explore. Why do these beings look so much like orangutans and how does that connect well fun thing i'm sure you probably heard of gigantopithecus right absolutely okay. yes okay well they were supposed to be and for people who don't know these are prehistoric creatures that that um were closely related to orangutans now what i laugh they come up with all these things about them but all they found is like some jaw bones and some teeth so i don't know where they came up with all this information but they're supposed to be closely related to orangutans and they think they're bipedal but these are 10-foot creatures so they look like orangutans, but um, but the thing is, as far as these creatures, the Maka being orangutans, 
is that one of the things, like I said, I worked as a character artist in Tampa. So I worked at Bush Gardens and I worked at Tampa Zoo and they all have orangutans. And, and I just like, I've been at my current job a little over a year, but, but you know, about a summer or so ago, I worked there all summer and my character stand was right by where the orangutans were. And I love orangutans. And they got this great exhibit. They got this Mac Daddy alpha male and he's got two mates and they got several kids from all these mates and stuff. So they got babies and everything else. But if you go over there and look at orangutans, I saw them on a daily basis. And they, the way they walk, I mean, normally they're in a squatting position they're, they're, and, and they walk on all fours and they just don't walk on hind legs like that. I mean, they're, they're more squatty than, than gorillas and chimpanzees. And they, they're just almost all in a, in a squatty position. And they, they mostly have upper body strength. Their legs, they, they just don't walk around. So that's why I don't think because I know some people see uh, Bigfoot and say they're on fours. That's that happens, but they're primarily walking off on, on on their hind feet. I don't think orangutans would do that. Sure, there are enormous anatomical differences uh, between Sasquatch reports and orangutans. Um, even though people are reporting such similarities in appearance to orangutans, there are enormous differences nonetheless. For example, the uh, arm to leg ratio seems to be about. 95%. The, the, the arms seem to be 95% of the length of the legs. The legs are indeed long, like a bipedal being, uh, but the arms are almost equally long, which, is, which accounts for, which explains how easily they can go down on all fours. It, it explains part of the apparatus that allows them to go down on all fours so easily. And th this Gigantopithecus theory never has resonated with me for the very reason that uh, I don't feel I don't see why or how a uh, a quadrupedal being, a quadrupedal orangutan-like being, would suddenly become bipedal and develop an inline toe instead of a, of, of a divergent toe and develop a hooded nose instead of an open nose like an ape would have. All of these being human attributes that I don't see any reason why Gigantopithecus would suddenly just develop any or all of these attributes. So... Yeah, the, the 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 Gigantopithecus thing just has never seemed quite right to me. Well, let me uh, let's, let me say this though. I, I agree with that. And my main thing is is I just don't think that Bigfoot is a dumb ape, or else I don't think it'd be that elusive. If it was. I'm not saying this as smart as a person, but but I just I just don't think it's just a regular ape. I think there's more to it than that. I think it might be some hybrids of different types of prehistoric hominids. I mean, like like we know that. Um, that even that humans still have traces of Neanderthal DNA, mostly like in Europe. So we know that at one time Neanderthals lived at the same time as as modern man, and they occasionally crossbred, apparently. Because, but so there perhaps there's other a little bit more primitive hominids that would, you know, crossbreed or something. But the significance of Gigantopithecus to me is not necessarily that they are the ancestors of Bigfoot. It just proves. That at one point, at one given time, there was a 10 foot Bigfoot like creature. So, if there was one at one time, that kind of makes it more easy to believe that there could still be a similar creature like that. Absolutely. Gigantopithecus demonstrates for us that Bigfoot is possible. Yeah, it's not like a unicorn or a dragon, it's something that existed at one time. And you mentioned a number of things that are, are really key to my whole obsession with the Bigfoot mystery, that, that intermingling of various versions of early humanity. I'm, I'm looking at a moment when I look at Bigfoot. I'm looking at a very ancient moment, and I'm looking for something in that moment 
when I look at Bigfoot. So you're talking about something that is very important to me there. And yes, every population outside of sub-Saharan Africa does contain uh, lingering traces of Neanderthal DNA. And uh, all, pop- all human populations around the globe do contain or seem to contain some kind of lingering uh, archaic DNA from an ancient hominin species. So we have, the human story is a very complex one. There's no one human being. There is just a various, uh, there are various attempts at becoming human, it seems to me. Well, one thing I want to add is that, like the whole thing with Neanderthals is if you, I, I saw, so I'm not saying that he, uh, Bigfoot are Neanderthals, but I've heard some things that now a lot of scientists have closely studied Neanderthals that they looked a lot different than we were led to believe. Because back in the 60s or whatever, um, they didn't want to display Neanderthals as being ape-like. They're always In the museums, the way they're depicted in movies and stuff, they always made them look more human. But if you ever look at a Neanderthal skull, it's very ape-like. And also, some, some scientists think that Neanderthal might have been, if not more hairy, or completely covered with hair. I mean, the biggest mystery to me is how come every ape and monkey and you know primate in the world is covered with hair except us we just you know what happened there and um it's very strange but um but it's just possible it's it just i i just think that like you said that bigfoot are just a crossbreed of different things and um but i think what really that's what, the whole purpose of this book like i said would you know if you ever thumb through the pages i mean i they look a lot different and um and it's just like because I mean I, I believe that the Patterson film is real, um, and so I think that that's what one Bigfoot would look like, and it'd just be a lot easier to say that all Bigfoot look like the Patterson film. But all these people say, uh, you know, a lot of these hunters that go out there, they have them in their scopes, they're getting ready to shoot them, they look through the scope, and they just can't do it because they look too human. And so, so you know, and then some look like cavemen, like we said, and and so it's just kind of, I just think that Bigfoot vary from region to region just between the crossbreeding. And um, now really, um, I'm kind of reluctant to bring this up because it's kind of controversial, but a lot of the Indians talk about the, the Bigfoot of crossbred with humans. I don't know if that's possible. I mean, it's possible because chimpanzees are almost close enough, I mean, the chromosomes and all that. I mean, it's possible that every now and then, for whatever reason, a Bigfoot might breed with a human that's why they might look different from area to area based on how much human dna they have in them that's just a weird out there thought this is yet another one of those weird out there thoughts that touches very much on one of those very in here thoughts that i have john i yeah this is another very important thing to me this absolutely happens in my opinion Uh, i i think i think it it has often become necessary for the sasquatch to infuse their populations with our dna because they at times live in very desperate situations i think in which in which uh they they experience isolation from other populations and i think the gene pool can get a little get a little shallow so uh, i think that's when they supplement their their dna with our own during those times i think they i have i have another theory about that i have i think they they might have a couple of reasons for doing this and this this second theory this is even farther out there john okay uh, let's, go. Hey, let's do it so uh i think what you know i in, in the course of my re- of my research it has come to my attention just how much attention they pay to us. Now, people are aware of them observing us, of course. People talk of them as being curious. Oh, yeah, they're curious. They like to watch people. No, 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 they're not just curious. It is their job 
to watch us. They do it all the time. They observe us far, far more than of what we are aware, I, in my opinion, John. Uh, and and to the extent that, for, for example, I recently, or just a couple months ago, had a conversation with Bobo, and he was telling me that, that, that uh, Sasquatches have been known to flag down ambulances when they're injured. That's how much attention they pay to us. That's how much they know about us. They know what an ambulance is for. And, and uh, why, why do they observe us so much? Well, it, it behooves them to do so. They need to observe us in order to live their lives in their way. So how do they observe us? How might they go about observing us in new ways? Well, to gain our cognition, of course, to think like us. And so to think like us, well, why not become us? Why not become us in order to think like us? Why not take one of our numbers and infuse their population with our DNA so that they may have one of their own who can think like us? I wonder if this happens sometimes, John. Well, let me, let me put my I thought on that. Okay, well, first off, as I'm sure you know, it's not unusual to find big, Bigfoot tracks that have only like four toes or even three toes. And I think that could be a sign of inbreeding. And so basically, the thing is with Bigfoot is that, um, okay, they're, they're, it's questionable how much their numbers are, but it would, it's probably, they might be able to travel long distances, maybe underground or whatever. Um, I was surprised. I recently went to my hometown in Cleveland when my brother and I drove home, just how much these forests extend from state to state to state. So it's possible they could go long distances. But the whole thing is, is that if they have an alpha male, if they have a, like a regular group of an alpha male and a female, so they might, an alpha male might have more than one mate. I don't know, but he's not going to share. So basically once a, a, a Bigfoot male, you know, becomes ready to go, you know, you know, sexually active or whatever, it's probably hard for them to find a mate that is not closely related. And so perhaps Bigfoot are smart enough to recognize, okay, I got this deformed baby that may, maybe they're smart enough somehow to realize that they like got to clean up the gene pool, like you said. So maybe they every now and then occasionally capture a human just to clean up the, the gene pool. And um, that's one thing. And then secondly, you know, it's like, I don't know, if, like, let's say a, a, an alpha male, they have a, a, a male baby or whatever, it, it comes of age, it might cast it out because it might be in fear, it might try to, you know, threaten him to try to become the alpha or whatever, or else a male just might voluntarily leave to try to find another mate. But, you know, you have these, I mean, I don't think there's a lot of rogue males in general, but I think at one time they might leave to try to find a mate and everything. And during that time, it might be desperate and maybe having trouble hunting. And it might be lonely, you might want to breed, and all of a sudden, a, girl, a, a girl's walking around the woods, and they're like, why not? You know, so right. it's possible. I mean, I think the only time that a Bigfoot would attack somebody is out of desperation, and that would be if they're starving or if they are just really wanting to mate. Well, I, I can see various levels of thought when, when I look at the way that Sasquatches abduct humans. I can see various levels of intention and various levels of planning. Yes, women are often reported to be abducted by Sasquatches. Sasquatches try to drag them off. They drag them off in tents, sleeping bags. They, uh, you know, all sorts of stuff. Even going back to times long before tents and sleeping bags, uh, Sasquatches were abducting native women, of course. But in, it seems to me that most often, when we hear of reports of abduction specifically for the purpose of breeding, 
it seems to me that that human being abducted is most often a man. And uh, the, the, the reasons behind this, of course, should be pretty obvious. Uh, a male Sasquatch coupling with a female human uh, does not lead to a baby. So there are Sasquatches who do do this for their own purposes, for their own physical purposes. There are Sasquatches who abduct women to satisfy their physical needs. That does happen. But when a Sasquatch is actually trying to produce an heir, that, that abductee is a man most of the time, it seems to me. Like, of course, we're familiar with Albert Osman. We're familiar with other such reports, and it, it often seems to me that this, this man is brought to a low, a low place, a depressed area where he can't climb out of. I'm familiar with one such report from my area, John. From back in the day, there was a railroad lineman in my area in Siskiyou County, California, who was abducted by a female Sasquatch, and, she, and he was brought to a low, depressed area in, in a rocky place. And she prevented him from escaping. She forced him to breed with her over and over again. Yeah, I know that story. Yeah. Oh, do you, do you know, do you know how she prevented him from, from escaping? Uh, no, I, I, is that the one that they called a rape pit? I don't know. The way she prevented him from escaping was by licking his hands and feet raw. Oh Did yeah. you hear yeah. about that? Yeah. Yeah. I remember yeah. that now. That was a hell of a thing, wasn't it? But it's funny. You mentioned Albert Osman. He's in my book. I got a picture of him. So that's in there. But yeah, I mean, well, that's the whole thing because yeah, I, I did hear that story, but the, it, it really kind of makes sense if you think about it, because the whole thing is if a male is going to kidnap a human female, then they're going to have to keep her alive and, and watch her constantly for the nine month period of having a baby. But if a male, you know, impregnates a female, they can just let him go and not have to worry about it. Well, sure. There's a, for me, there's another prominent physical factor there though like uh just the the physical nature of the coupling of a male sasquatch uh with a female human uh, i don't think that leaves a female human healthy enough physically to have a baby i think that devastates the body in a way that does not allow for a baby so even though it does happen for the purpose of you know just a sasquatch getting his nut uh for the purpose of actual breeding I think it's most often a man. I think that's what happens. That just seems to be the case, just from what I have observed and read over the years. So, you know, that's just, those are my thoughts currently. Yeah, well, that's the thing. It's just people don't like to talk about it. But I know in Indian folklore, they talk about it all the time. Because, like, basically, even though Indians say that they're sacred and things like that, there were times back a really long time ago that they had wars with Bigfoot. And it's mostly, you know, sometimes sure they put over territory and land and food. But also the males were kidnapping children, possibly to eat them, but also were taking the females. And that's one of the things that the Indians fought about. And apparently they, they kind of came up with some compromise. So they kind of developed boundaries. And you see out of my area, I'll stay here is where you find. But, um, but it is talked about in, in Indian folklore, or Native American, I should say. I'm sorry. Uh, folklore. So There's a very complex and very ancient story. We're, we're tapping into something that we just forgot about. We're not tapping into something new. We've, we're just remembering something that we've forgotten about when we inquire into the Bigfoot mystery. But, but you know, as I say this, I, I also need to say that I feel there is plenty of new, new, brand new stuff to be discovered at the same time. So it's just a, it's a very fascinating and very old and very necessary question to address right now, I think, John. What do you think? Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, because you figure, because like, like I said, a lot of these stories I have in my book are from the 1800s, I mean, and on. And um, 
Because I think it's like like one of the characters in my book um, is yeah. Have you ever heard of Jocko the Ape Boy? Oh yeah, yeah. Because you you start talking about train before you know, but he's caught by train tracks, and there's not a lot of information about him. But this is 1984, and they said it looked like a gorilla, but they didn't say it was a gorilla. You know, I mean, 1884. Yeah, yeah. I meant to say 1884. I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, it's just the fact that these stories go back so far, and so it's chances that that these creatures probably have adapted over the years. So there are going to be new situations and. Yeah. Well, when we look at that thing that is adapting, we have to look at the thing itself. What is it and how does it adapt? Yes, a, a thing changes over time and it becomes something new, but what, what is the nature of the thing that is adapting? Is It might be a kind of a, an abstract thought, a little, bit, uh, a little bit hard to pin down what I'm saying, but it's, you know, it's just involved in those thoughts. All, all I really need to say for now about that, John, is that it's just a big, fascinating thing and we're looking into it. And we've got people like you, the famous John Urban, who are, you know, artistically bringing these things to people's attention. And I think that is really, really cool. Now, John, we are in the last few minutes of the show. Okay. I would like to know, I would like to know exactly what you want us to know in that time. What would you like us to know about in the, in the last few minutes that we have? Well, I mean, it's basically kind of like the focus of my book is just, it does embrace that there's not just one type of Bigfoot. There's lots of different variations and, um, so the whole thing about my book, it is originally I was thinking of having, you know, like stories of each one, kind of like a picture book. But at the end of the day, I said, OK, this is a coloring book. So it's it's mostly illustrations. But in my the two page glossary, I do have, you know, brief information about it. So I'm hoping just to spark interest, you know, that they if they hear about a story that they can they may want to go back and look it up online and stuff. I mean, like I have you ever hear of the creature, the Russian Bigfoot Zena? Oh, yeah. Oh, I love Zena. Well, that's another situation where, where the local villagers, which, you know, for people who don't know, this is a Bigfoot-like creature that was caught in a small village. That's back in the 1876, I believe. But um, it was wild, and she was six and a half feet tall, very muscular. She could outrun a horse, covered with hair, had a very ugly face, and uh, they kept her uh, locked up like three years or so until she was taming up, but then she didn't run away. She just walked around the town. She refused to wear clothes, never learned to speak. But the local townspeople would get her drunk and take advantage of her. And she had like four babies. So I don't know if that story is true or not. Well, actually, they've done quite a bit of genetic testing of Zena's lineage. Uh, her children were reported to have unique physical characteristics. Like one of her sons, for example, he could, his jaw was so powerful that he could pick up a chair with his jaw, with his teeth, with a person sitting in it. Wow. And this, yeah, this same son, he also had a very high and very beautiful singing voice, unusually high. And uh, there were other unique characteristics. And, th and they actually dug up one of her sons and uh, they tested the DNA from, I believe, uh, it, uh, DNA that they extracted from somewhere in his skull, maybe a tooth or something like that. Anyway, they, they, they got his DNA and they also uh, tested um, one of Zena's uh, living descendants. I'm not sure if it is a grandchild or a or a grand nephew or something like that, but one of her descendants anyway. And and uh, and and they've they've compared it. And they Brian Sykes. There's a whole big thing about it, and I don't want to get too much into the controversy of all that. But Brian Sykes, he did this test, and he 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 claims to have detected uh, African DNA in Zena's lineage. Uh, it, it is 
inconclusive as to what that means. It's inconclusive, inconclusive if this is entirely modern human, modern African human DNA, or according to Brian Sykes, uh, there is some possibility that this is an archaic African DNA. And this might have been uh, our DNA from a very old hominin lineage indeed that had come out of Africa and was now living in remote Russia. So, I mean, there are a lot of different possibilities, but they have uncovered that there is some strange thing going on with the Zena story. There's some kernel of truth in there somewhere. Well, the whole thing about Bigfoot is like, you know, because I'm interested in other cryptozoological creatures. So what I always like to say is that I, I think there's always some basis of truth to all myths and legends. I think there's a little bit more to it than that. Oh, yeah. I think there's a lot more to it than that. I uh, I don't believe that this was a modern African human uh, DNA. It was just one of the possibilities that was put forth by this study. I feel like there is too much in the story that actually suggests that this was a hominin, a, a, a non-human hominin species. I, I there, There's too much to say that that is actually real. So I don't believe the first suggestion, but I just had to throw it out there. Yeah. Well, I mean, to, to answer your question, though, the thing about my book is that, you know, I think a lot of people would like the artwork because it's very detailed and graphic and it's different. They don't all look the same. But like I said, I mean, the main thing is I, I you know, you go to the glossary because I mean, I, I cover a lot of areas in there. Like I covered the Russian uh, Diablo Pass when the kid, when all those people were killed and they thought it could have been a Bigfoot. Um, I got the Mount St. Helens uh, rescue and some you know when they had the volcano and some years later these soldiers came out and they pretty much said that they actually were guarding these bigfoot creatures that were being you know kind of recovered or whatnot and you know i got the zane in there and the jacko and ape canyon where the miners were attacked by bigfoot so i I just have a lot of things in there so what i'm hoping is that when people will kind of they take the time to look at the glossary and read a bit i don't have a lot of information in there but enough That'll inspire them to do further research and get interested in all these different Bigfoot stories that they can look up on the internet. Oh yeah, John, you are planting a lot of seeds in people, and I like it. I like that you are planting seeds of interest and curiosity, and that is what John Urban is doing, the famous John Urban is doing with his book, The Famous Bigfoot and Yeti Encounters Coloring Book. Oh, and I meant to say, actually, I'm going to get three of your books. I'm going to get one for myself to keep pristine. I'm going to get another one to the, that I can that I can color in, and I'm going to get a third one for my two year old nephew to hold on to him, you know, so he can have it in the future in a few years or so. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, and I I, I want to. Can I get you to autograph mine? I'm going to send it to you and have you autograph it if you don't mind. Is that no, cool? No, no, definitely. I'd be happy to do that for you. Sweet. Famous John Urban, thank you so much for joining me today on Type 471. Okay, my pleasure. Thank you. If you would like to be privy to the reckoning in consciousness that is Type 471, go immediately to your preferred podcast platform and follow the show. Rate Type 471. Give it as many or as few stars as you believe it deserves. Say your piece in the comments and share Type 471 with other people, like-minded people. People like you who can hear in my voice that I am deadly serious about delivering wondrous truths to you. So if you believe in what I'm attempting to do, make sure everybody knows how you feel about Type 471. Finally, to share your own wondrous experiences with me, email me at type471podcast at gmail.com. I'm Sam Kitchen. You be well, dear listener. I will speak to you next week.